0: have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I do encourage you to stick with us. The hour is late. And indeed, the hour is late. Um, This is the pinnacle passage in the book of Isaiah as concerns the season of Advent. One of the things that I love about this passage is it so forms our understanding of the doctrine of Christ so as to give us not only a composite picture of his work, but really also an extremely precise definition of his person. That is to say, we are left as to no doubt how Christ can be both fully God and fully man. And uh, in today's sermon, we're going to look at that in a precise manner, Uh, but we're also going to look at this passage as a reminder to the people of Israel of God's work long ago that he had done through Gideon. And in fact, if if you wished to think about it, you could consider this a sermon within a sermon. And you'll see why we're going to get to that point in just a second. First, I want to discuss the rescue of Israel. That is our theme in Advent. That she, although she is in exile, she will be returned to the land. But not only that, God will bring about joy in a place of gloom and darkness. Christ will be triumphant in victory. That triumph that he will do is where we will look at Gideon and the correlation to Gideon. We'll look at the deity and humanity of the son as Isaiah tells us specifically, something that is extremely important for you to know, especially if you are involved in any sort of evangelism. For many people in our day today do not believe something that they need to believe concerning Christ if they are to be saved. And you'll see what that is. Christ's rule in the kingdom of God as a rule that is without end and finally exalting the zeal of the Lord of hosts as being the effect and person of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, um, as you know, during our time in Advent, we focus on the exile that the people of God go into. That exile was due to their sins and rebellions against God. And so, one of the things that I want to just bring about as a a meta idea within the season of Advent is that Jesus is not just joy to the world. Jesus is joy to the world because he was joy to Israel. That is to say that there was a fulfillment of the promises of God to Israel specifically. And the promise being fulfilled to Israel specifically was, became the mechanism by which Jesus was proclaimed as a savior to the Gentiles. God fulfills his promise to Israel, makes them into a transforming promise to the nations around them. And so singing joy to the world, we can only sing it insofar as Jesus is recognized as the joy to his people, being the fulfillment and rescue for them. And so the fulfillment of God's promises is how he becomes the joy to the nations. So the anguish and gloom for the people of God was due to their sin and rebellion, but that anguish and gloom was proscribed by God for a certain time, and he limited it. God is the one who says that the light shall come this far and no further. Likewise, he does the same with the darkness. The rule that God has over the created order is the same rule that he has over the judgments which come against his people, the judgments which he approves of and limits and measures. Though she experiences pain for a short time, she does not experience pain, pain and anguish without any sort of purpose or end. It is so that she would recognize the due and right consequences of sin. She goes into exile not because of God's disfavor with her alone, but also because that is what sin always does. We often, we often malign the character of God, thinking that God is a punitive God who just wishes to judge those things which are sin, but sin itself has a transforming iniquitous power. That is to say, the corruption of the sons of God uh, that com- came about through Adam, that corruption had a destiny-shaping effect. It perverted their trajectory forever. And it is only through the action of God that that can be redeemed and changed. And so Advent is not just an understanding or a remembering of the exile of the people. It is also a deeply helpful time to understand the nature of sin. Though she is in gloom and darkness, God has appointed the end of her night through specifically the action of sending his son. He does not simply... Bring the people out from exile back into the land and leave them there only for them to fall into another cycle of faithfulness to God, rejection of his law, idolatry, judgment, and exile. That cycle which goes on throughout all of the book of Exodus, the book of the Judges, everything that goes on with the kings, even the time after the the kingdom was divided, God puts an end to that cycle. And he puts an end to it, not mysteriously or magically as if waving a wand from heaven, but by stepping down in the person of his son. That is why Christ comes, not just to go to a cross to make an atonement, but to put an end to the sinful waywardness of his people. Verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought them into contempt, goes on later to say, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah goes on to break into a poem. That's why if you look in your Bibles at Isaiah 9, there's a description of verse 1, which is a summary statement for the chapter, and then two really through the end of the chapter are inset. That's a way to describe the nature of the text being different. This is a poetic and prophetic poem. It's a, it's a song, if you will, uh, in, a, in a very literal sense. Uh, Isaiah here is giving an oracle concerning the glory and work of Jesus Christ. And he says that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. Hopefully you can see the poetic nature there that that image is showing darkness, light, Great darkness, light. And so this is, this is absolutely what God is doing. Even though they return from exile, at this point, Israel has returned from the Assyrian exile. Even though they've returned, they now live in a land of darkness. The justification for their exile being their sinful condition, they brought that back into the land. That is, there was a spiritual delusion over the people such that they were not able to perceive God, nor understand his laws, nor obey them, and that darkness became world-defining. They live in a land of darkness, not just a darkness in a man's heart or a family's life or a town's situational dynamic. They live in a world of darkness And now Isaiah begins to prophesy that they have seen a great light. One of the very important things to understand, as we'll see at the end of today's sermon, is that these things are said in past tense. I want you to just notice that and we'll we'll explain why that is at the end. But they have seen a great light. There is light that has shone upon them. Christ himself, who is the great light, shines upon the people and specifically does a work in the land of Galilee, Galilee of the nations. He calls to himself a great multitude. We see this in the book of Mark in the third chapter. He calls to himself a great multitude, and it's very reminiscent of exactly what Moses was doing in leading the people out of bondage toward the sea. And this is exactly where the feeding of the 5,000 happens. All of these events that we know so well take place when Jesus takes his multitude to the sea. See, Christ is saying to his people through his actions, I am bringing you into the true exodus, the true uh, leaving of sin and the joining to righteousness. Christ's glory is seen most excellently, and though it is called a deep darkness, Christ is described as a great light I love this pattern in the first verse of this oracle. There is a darkness, a great light, a deep darkness, but behold light. It ends with the light being shown for the people. And so God is doing a work by sending his son to end the exile, and Christ specifically does that by demonstrating the nature and father of God through the miracles, signs, and wonders that he performs in public for his people to see. He is able to shine upon the people even though they w- live in a world of gloom, for he himself is the light and life of men. Through his action, God rebuilds and restores what has been destroyed through the exile. In verse three, it says, you have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. But this can only be understood in recognizing that the people through their judgment and exile suffered great and catastrophic losses in terms of numbers of people alive, numbers of towns which were built up. We saw last week and the week prior how God declared that through the iniquity of his people, they would be like a forest which has been hewn down, cut down, John the Baptist picks up this same language in the gospel saying that the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. There is another military judgment that is coming unless you should turn to Christ. And so God actually establishes his people and causes them to grow in number when they had been decreased in number and deeply, deeply oppressed and depressed. Though many are killed in the conquest, God multiplies the nation again and causes them to grow in number. And we can think very clearly at the book of Acts and see how this was the case. It is no longer just a genetic nation, but rather a spiritual understanding of the people that Christ brings about. Even though he redeems them from prior disobedience to the law, whereby they were frequently ravaged and subject to corruption and sin... He causes them to come into true spiritual worship. Look at this at the end of verse 3. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. In the law of God, God commanded his people to utilize their gifts, the produce from the land, those things which they had worked for, to contribute to his worship. The bread of the presence, which is on the golden altar in the tabernacle, was made by flour that was contributed by the people. It's called the bread of the presidents, but the bread of the presence, but it's also accurately called the bread of the people. It's the people's bread. It's the people's work. In fact, liturgy itself, the, the word liturgy, which we so often uh, malign everyone has a liturgy. We have a liturgy. Um, every church you've been to has a liturgy. That liturgy is just the work of the people. And so God causes them not only to come out of their spiritual waywardness, but he causes them to come into a condition by which they can once again offer true worship. Over and over again in the exile and judgment, the prophecy from the prophet would concern a judgment saying that the wine has been cut off, the flour has run out, the oil has been stopped, and those are the ingredients for worship in the Old covenant. God causes them to not only be able to worship the joy at the harvest, but also to keep faithfulness to his original commandment. Israel frequently refused to subdue the inhabitants of the land, but God defeats her enemies in this chapter through the work of Christ, such that she receives the reward and is able to divide the spoil. If you look at the early parts of the book of Judges, every trouble that Israel receives is because she did not expel the inhabitants of the land. She would not obey. Now, of course, this can be spiritually understood as the remaining sin dwelling in a believer. If you are not willing to put the ax to the root of those things in your life, which are contra Christ, they will spring up and ruin the vineyard. They absolutely will destroy Uh, faithfulness to Christ. This is the lesson that we are to learn from Israel. God restores his people and is able to cause them to come into fullness, to be multiplied, to be increased in joy. And so as an application, I would ask, do you know this gloom and anguish of which the prophet speaks of? Have you understood that this is actually a spiritual declaration of the state of, of a sinner's life before they come to Christ. Are, are you someone who lightly considers the things of Christ and, and is merely flirting with or on the edges of whether you want to become a Christian or not, or whether you, if you call yourself a Christian, whether you want to really become a true disciple of Christ, or are you willing to just be on the periphery? I would call you to to wake up to the reality that your sins are a deluding Gloomy anguish, which are warring against your soul and diminishing it such that it's not able to perceive and know and enjoy and love God. Look to Christ and consider the great light that He is able to bring about. If so, look to Christ. Have you considered the light of Christ rightfully so that you do not neglect such a wonderful relief? The book of Hebrews, as we studied last year over and over again, is calling us to not neglect the salvation with which we are acquainted in our mind, but still retain our hearts far from it. Do not neglect Christ, for Christ is the only light of the world that you have. See, you cannot sing joy to the world and not at once be indicting your own condition and and describing your own great deep need. The reason that Christ is wonderful, the reason we celebrate Christmas, is not because God gives us a gift in his Son, like the other gifts which we give each other, but rather because the gift that the Father gives in giving the Son to us is a gift that we deeply need. It's not like the pair of socks or the Xbox or whatever. It is something that without which you have no reason to exist. And indeed, without Christ, you are headed towards a terrible, terrible end. And yet God promises to bring about joy He brings that joy through the sending of his son, but the the light of Christ must shine in your hearts through the gospel. So Christ is triumphant in victory. None of this occurs mysteriously. God does not bring about salvation for his people by just wishing it to come to pass or declaring it to to come to pass from heaven. He sends his son, and this is really the beginning of our understanding in this passage for the glory of the incarnation. God sends his son to accomplish this victory. He does not send his son simply as a cute baby, but rather to wage war. Many people hate that I emphasize this at Advent and Christmas, and yet I would submit to you that you cannot tame Jesus Christ into being a silent baby in a manger. I absolutely hate, and I believe I hate with holy zeal, that song, Is It Away in a Manger? Which one is it? No crying he makes. That's docetism, brothers and sisters. Christ, Christ re- received a true humanity that was familiar with weakness and acquainted through fellowship and friendship on a human level with the suffering that brought about sin. Christ had a cold at one point. And if you think I'm wrong, you're a docetist. Now his cold was not due to sin. His cold was due to his reception of humanity. Christ went to the bathroom and that is not crass because this is the glory of the humility of the Son of God. And as wonderful as these descriptions of his humanity are, if they don't understand what he's going to do at the cross, then it is no Christmas at all. Christmas is joyful and wonderful because he comes to make war on those things which we cannot make war on ourselves. Though Israel had some good military victories at times in the past, what good is it to kill the Philistines if you become a Philistine? It's absolutely no good. And so we see through the history of God's dealings with his people that although most of the time they do not obey him and do not make war on the inhabitants of the land, even when they do, it is not a lasting victory because the enemy is greater than the military conquest the enemy is insidious as as God told Cain sin is crouching at the door sin is looking for a way in and its desire is to destroy you its desire is to master you yet you must master it and we know quite well that even with that warning cain did not master sin so it was with the people of god even if they destroyed some of the nations and some of the tribes which were worshiping idols they themselves adopted those same gods we see this most clearly that when the altar goes to the philistines when it comes back they adopt the philistine mechanism for transporting the the altar this is, of course, a metaphor for the insidiousness of sin. It gets in however it wishes. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I like the King James in verse 5. It says, For, the, for every warrior will be thrown into confusion which I think is a more faithful rendering of what the Hebrew says. Don't let that throw you in your confidence for the word of God. Uh, tr- translation issues are, are something that would take us way too far afield today. But really, you really do have a faithful translation in your uh, scriptures. So every boot of the trampling warrior is thrown into battle. Tumult might be more accurately translated into the confusion of war, the, the fog of war has descended upon the Midianites. Though God could have wiped out Assyria and Rome with a mere breath, even this victory would have been hollow. It would have been a hollow victory because the warriors are really not Assyria and Rome. The warriors are the divided heart. That division in the heart which is inclined to sin versus inclined to righteousness in God. That division is on every single person. And indeed, before someone comes to Christ, there is nothing of an inclination towards God at all. The warrior that you have that is greater than any other warrior, it's not just Satan, it's not just the world, it's the indwelling sin in your flesh which must be destroyed and killed. And Christ alone can answer that. In Christ, God delivers his people in a similar manner as he did through Gideon's conquest of the Midianites. This is why I said I believe that today will be a sermon in a sermon, because we're about to to examine a few words that Isaiah only references briefly, but yet I believe are a full and explicit call to remember everything that God did on the day of Midian. In the days of the judges, the people feared the gods of the nation, and then bowed down to them, and then served them. This is very important to understand that God, which you fear, you will worship. They feared the gods of the nations. They bowed down to them, worshiped and served them. They made idols, they established high places. They set up altars to Baal. That is the Lord, Uh, not the Lord Elohim, not the Lord Almighty, but the Lord Baal. Uh, Not our Lord, but rather a competing Lord, which is what all other gods are. They established places and worship them. God raises up a very insignificant young man who is hiding in the threshing floor and he is hiding in the threshing floor because he is afraid of the Philistines. God brings this young man about and he calls him And the first action that the Philistine defeater does is not to, to fight the Philistines but rather to go after the idols that his own father had made. God calls Gideon, and this is of course to be understood as conferring a promise. When he makes that promise to God, Gideon gives, uh, gives God a, a request, he makes a request of God, and God confirms the promise to be fulfilled through the sign of the fleece, the sign of the fleece being a very clear and explicit understanding of the calling forth of a death to a lamb. That death to the lamb was no insignificant aspect of this story, to show that his divine assistance in battle was concrete, God commands him to take the army of 32,000 and bring it down first to 10,000 and then finally to 300. This is absolute folly to the natural mind. And yet I believe that there is something deeply important here. God wants to make sure that no one, both there and now, had any doubt as to whether or not god was the one accomplishing the victory gideon and his men surround the camp they blow trumpets and they break jars which conceal their torches throwing midian into confusion and retreat such that midian mostly defeats herself as she as i described that fog of war coming on in that in the the scriptures it says that they turn their sword against their neighbors and then they began to flee gideon then goes takes his men and chases them down and slays all of them. A wonderful, wonderful victory. Although although this is clearly a picture of Christ's victory, I believe that through analogy, through the understanding of this as a symbolic picture of Christ, that this is a description of the greater glory of Christ. Before the time of Christ, the people were likewise in darkness, just as in Gideon's day, with the oppression on the land and the spiritual compromise, but, Christ is bringing about a light in a darkness that is not just idolatrous, but also it has the form of being faithful. This is important to understand because so many Christians or so many Bible-believing church-attending people think that they have righteousness with God because they hold to an external form of religion, yet are deluded in thinking that it is righteousness when it is nothing of the kind. This is what was going on in Israel. They had the temple. They had a king. They had religious leaders. And yet through the Gospels, we see that Christ has a controversy to settle with all of them. They have perverted their temple. Their king is a false king, not in the line of David. And the religious leaders are the children of Satan. And yet they think they are worshiping Yahweh. All of the nation believes that they are right with God and yet they are being overruled by and are complicit with and okay with false religion and compromise. This is why the work and glory and victory of Christ is greater than Gideon. But when the times had come, the fullness of times had come, God sent his son to break this darkness off of the people and he did this by causing his son, calling his son to take on humanity and enter the quiet and hidden place of the womb. You see Gideon hiding in the threshing floor is a picture of this. Christ, the very word of God, the word which God is speaking forth into the world becomes silent and becomes small and becomes hidden. And for nine months, the very word of God was hidden from all, save for those who the angel had awoken. After Christ had began his ministry, he entered into the temple and cleansed it of an idol. But the most insidious idol is not Baal or the Astrapoles. Those are clearly identifiable. The idols that Christ finds in his temple when he comes are the idols of mammon. That is, the Israelites were serving the love of money by causing a unfair tax to come upon those who were to offer up contributions to God by charging them deep and insidious interest on their money. God, through the work of Christ, cleanses his temple and he destroys the idols, much like Gideon destroyed the idols from his father. But greater than even the 300, Christ accomplishes his victory alone. Gideon had companions, yet Christ was totally, completely abandoned in his victory. Unlike Gideon, Christ defeats his enemies himself by succumbing to their attack. This is the glory of Jesus Christ in the cross, that everything that goes on at the cross looks as if it is a defeat, and yet it is a complete and total victory. Through the cross, Christ thoroughly subverts the stronghold of Satan and sin and death and undoes their power and unleashes all those who were trapped by their grip. Like Gideon's army, the light and glory of Christ is most clearly seen in the victory as his body, the clay pot, if you will, is broken and the light is to be able to be exposed. This is what Jesus says when he's going to the cross. He says to God, glorify me with the glory that I had when I was with you. And he says that because he understands what he is going to do. The true nature and glory of the son is most clearly seen as his body is broken open upon the cross. This is exactly what Christ does. He breaks the yoke of Satan. This is coming back to Isaiah really quickly. He says that the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, he shall break as on the day of Midian. Christ breaks the yoke of Satan, the staff of sin, and the rod of death, loosening his children from their bondage to sin and absolutely defeating their allegiance to Satan, of whom they were prior children. But now they are reborn in Christ, and he grants them life in the resurrection. Christ smashes smashes his enemies and enables us, empowers, nay, requires us to do the same. Christ commands us to begin to walk in the victory which he purchases for us, not turning back to sin and those things which we formerly have re- formerly have repented of. The gospel therefore, as Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is exactly what the day of Midian is meaning. That is, Isaiah by the Spirit of God prophesies and says, I don't know what to compare it to even as we saw last week that the new exodus would be greater than the old such that they wouldn't talk about it anymore. Here he says, I don't have anything else in the history of Israel with which to compare this other than that victory which seems so foolish as the day of Midian. That is the victory that this one would bring is absolutely wonderful being the power of God and yet to the natural mind it is foolishness. This is why, brothers and sisters, you you must learn to evangelize and encourage your your friends, neighbors, whoever, with utmost clarity, because sin is so deluding, and the gospel itself is complete folly, that unless you accomplish this sharing and work with the power of the Holy Spirit, men will remain in their darkness. That is why the gospel is only able to be applied to someone's life by the Holy Spirit. The natural mind, the natural heart hates the gospel. It is opposed to the gospel. It thinks the gospel is folly. It thinks it's insanity, if you will. And yet this is exactly what God has done. He has done something that shames the wisdom of the world and gives wisdom to his children. And so the reasoning for all of this is that, gospel, that the gospel would have a elevated place in your life. For the Christians, I do not say this to the unbelievers, but to the Christians, do you know your ongoing bondage to sin? Are you well acquainted with, or are you kind of living your life at every time you sin, you just kind of ignore it, excuse it, ask for forgiveness and move on? Or are you well aware of the things which take you down? I believe it is a right thing for Christians to become well acquainted with those things which they are still vulnerable and tempted by. Now, a man or a woman can be tempted at any moment by anything because sin is that crazy and that even after walking with Christ for years, things that are horrifying to you when you're filled with the spirit and sober minded can in a moment of darkness and weakness seem attractive. And so my question to you is, do you know your bondage to sin? Do you know that it is not harmonious with what you're being called to? Do you still fear death? Many Christians are afraid of where our country is going, not because they have deep love for the nation, but because they're afraid of the persecution that would come upon them, should they attempt to remain faithful to Christ. If you still fear death, You, first of all, do not know the glory that awaits you on the other side, but you also don't understand how deeply the work of Christ applies to you, for he has defeated death. Likewise, also, do you still walk as though you were a slave to sin, even though you were redeemed by Christ? You ought to understand This is something that God wishes to work in in you, that you are not to consider yourself as a slave to sin. Though you are still human, though you you are still weak, though, as Luther says, you are simultaneously a sinner yet justified, you are being called to the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And you have been destined to grow in that. So my question to you is, do you see Christ as accomplishing what verse 4 says? Or is it just merely theoretical to you? Does it merely just have a nice ring to it that you might be able to celebrate from time to time when you read it? Or do you really have the victory of Christ applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit? If you are still in the throes of sin, fly to Christ for pardon and deliverance. He will not... Reject a bruised reed. He will not cast out anyone who comes to him. Christ will absolutely cause you to make progress in your war in sin. So now we turn to the deity and humanity of the Son of God. Everything that Isaiah says in this passage hinges on the first word of verse 5. He says, For. Everything that takes place, the people seeing a great light, the people being multiplied, the increase of joy in the nation, the yoke of the burden being smashed along with the staff and rod, all of this is because of verse 6, the word for. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." The victory is accomplished by Christ, showing both the uniqueness of his person and office, that he alone, being untainted by sin, was able not only to overcome those things, but to cause those who become new in him to have the same victory. God the Father gives his son for a specific purpose. I mentioned this earlier, that some people don't like mentioning the cross at Christmas, but that is why the Father gave his son. John 3, 14 through 17 describes the necessary condition for men to be saved. Because men are in deep lasting perennial darkness with which they are not even acquainted, let alone able to overthrow, God must send one who is sinless to become a propitiation for them. In the the incarnation, the son therefore is not created, but is given. So much of Christian theology hangs upon certain verses that are attested to in multiple places but are especially clear as are in the text here. It says, for a child is born, to us a son is given. And this is no hijacking of the language or manipulating it into what we wished for it to say. This is an explicit and clear proof that the son is not only God himself eternal but he takes upon humanity in the incarnation. Through the incarnation, the Son takes on human form and nature and is born. The Son is not manufactured in the womb of Mary, but rather enters by the Spirit of God to the womb of Mary and takes on human nature. I believe it is Athanasius or one of the early church fathers who says, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. And so it's important for you to understand the deep weight of Christian theology that hinges on a right understanding. Christ is fully God and fully man. If you've been at this church for more than three years, you know the term hypostatic union. This is the glorious mystery of the incarnation that God the Son who was eternal steps down and condescends, taking the lowest place among us, taking the form of a servant, even the form of the child of a virgin, and is assuming, taking on, receiving human nature. And through the hypostatic union, that great descriptive term, there are two natures in one glorious person. We were in a discussion about this just the other day. If that sounds very theoretical and hypothetical to you, I would, I would call you to study the deep importance of that, and and the deep soul edifying and nourishing that that doctrine can bring. Yes, it's a mystery. Yes, it cannot be comprehended so as to understand it fully, but it might be rightly apprehended. That is, you can come to some knowledge of the truth concerning the nature and person of Christ, and that actually is a glorious and wonderful thing for you. Uh, Though this child is humble in beginning, he is going to rise up to be the very foundation of the kingdom of God. He is extolled and identified here by Isaiah as the mighty God himself. This is why we know clearly this son is eternal. God is not created. God is eternal. God is his own self, his own justification and reason for his own existence. And this mighty God, the son who is given, becomes a child. Christ is the wonderful counselor who leads his people out of darkness and reveals the father. He is the only true teacher or the wonderful counselor. Although we call other human men teachers in the church, it is always understood that they are under teachers. They are under shepherds. Christ is the wonderful counselor not only because he himself is the truth, but he he brings men to the truth. He's the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, and the everlasting father. Christ is the everlasting father, not as a title of his divinity. Hear this clearly. So many people have adopted uh, the, the faith of the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons, and they are being led on their way to hell. And it is all for a lack of understanding of a clear title given to Christ, which describes his humanity. That is to say, Christ coming in the incarnation is not a supplanting of the Father. Rather, the Father remains the Father, and the Son takes on human form, and he is called everlasting as regard to his divinity, and Father as regard to one specific thing, his office as the head of the church. That is to say that Christ being the head of the church is considered to be relationally the father of all those who repent and believe. In Hebrews 2, during our time in, in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament saying that Christ is not, uh, he's not offended to call his brothers brothers but rather he calls them brothers because of his close affinity to them. And then Hebrews quotes a passage in which Christ is said to be speaking to the Father, I and the children that you have given to me. To, to, this is not a, a rejection of the Father as eternal or the Son as distinct from the Father, but rather only regarding his eternal office of being the head of all those who would be redeemed. And finally, Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince who ushers in the kingdom of God and causes his own peace to rule in the hearts of his people. Do you revel and delight in the mystery and knowledge of the Son of God in the incarnation? This is the greatest gift you could ever receive at any Christmas of your entire life is to come to a more complete and joy-filled understanding, appreciation, and meditation on the nature of the Son of God. If you are a Christian and you are in love with Christ, then this would be a natural outcome of your faith, that you would long to know your Redeemer and that you would long to know Him as He is, not in the imaginations of your mind. That you would reform your understanding of Christ by the renewal of the Spirit as is shown through the Scriptures. Do you commune with Him personally through the Scriptures at his table, and by his spirit in private prayer. If you're wanting to press into this understanding, if this is so new to you that you've never considered it before, that Christ has two natures in one glorious person, the hypostatic union of Christ, I would, can, I would call you to read a document called The Symbol of Chalcedon, also called the Chalcedonian Creed, which is a wonderful explanation of the nature of Jesus Christ, being both fully God and fully man. It's what we confess every week in the Nicene Creed, and yet that creed more fully and clearly expounds and glorifies and extols Jesus Christ in his uniqueness. In fact, it, it was one of the great, I, when I discovered this, I'd, I'd known about it, but I actually began to pray through it. That is to say, I would take a phrase and I would just read through it and I, and I would ask, Holy Spirit, make this real to me. That Jesus is begotten from the Father before all worlds, that Jesus Christ is the light of light, the true God of true God. These things which the documents of the church that that she has passed on do not create new doctrine, but rather summarize and succinctly and clearly expound what is in scripture clearly. And it became for me a devotional practice which I maintained for a few months, and it was deeply and wonderfully helpful. In fact, during some of the Bible studies that I've had in my home with other couples, understanding the dual nature of Christ is often one of the chief shields, if you will, of rightly interpreting the Gospels. There are many things that Christ does in the Gospels which make no sense unless you understand him to be fully God and fully man. Do you worship Christ and seek to walk in his kingdom? Ask from the Father a desire to know his Son, and he will absolutely grant it. Indeed, that is Christ's very prayer at John 17, the the close of John 17. Christ says that the love which you have for me would be in them think about that for a second. Christ's desire, his great love for you, is that you would receive the greatest gift you could receive, which is love for Christ, being loved by Christ. And so he petitions the Father that the very same love that the Father has for the Son would be in them. You are on a journey to love the Son as the Father loves the Son. We come now to Christ's rule over his kingdom. Verse seven describes the nature of his rule. And in this church, you are very familiar with the post-millennial hope. Not only will God bring about a return from the years of exile and sin, but will put an end to the wandering of his people. Brothers and sisters, the church is in a bad place in our country and in a a bad place in Europe, but that is not the entire story. We are not well acquainted with the wonderful revivals in South America, Africa, Asia, parts of Europe, indeed even parts of our country. I am convinced that God is continuing to work the way he always had. There always is a faithful remnant. You, I believe, are at one of those churches. Nevertheless, God is not going to let the world win. The whole message of the gospel can be Not fully, but clearly, succinctly summarized as God wants his children back. God wants his world back. If you have ever lost something and become jealous to find it or to receive it again, you might understand just a little bit about what Isaiah is saying at the end of this reading today. But let me convince you clearly, God is still working. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Christ is both a foundation for his government and the cause for its increase. That is to say, Christ himself is working through, as we'll see in a minute, the Holy Spirit to bring about an increase to his government. And I want to clearly say that if you read verse 7 with the eyes of faith, it is not just saying that his kingdom will continue to increase, but rather there will be no end, there will be no stopping to the increase of his kingdom. That is, his kingdom and its increase will not just have a linear growth or an additive growth, but it will have an exponential growth. And I believe that is clearly happening. If you look at history in the last 500 year segments, If you go all the way back to the time of Christ, and there's 120 followers in the upper room in in Jerusalem, and by the next year, there's over 5,000 people, at least. And that's with a conservative reading of Acts 2. Probably many more, based on the way that things were happening. If you extrapolate that to 500 years later, the entire Roman Empire had dissolved Rome was gone and it had become a Christendom, a realm over which Christ's rule and the faith of Christianity was the prevailing and predominant religion, not just from a top-down approach, but rather it had spread like leaven into all the world at that point. In fact, before even the disciples themselves, the apostles, had even died, the Gospel had made it to India and Norway. That's, that's why the flag of Norway is, is the shape it is because they consider Mark to be uh, the disciple who made it there and was crucified in that manner. That's why they have that, that weird flag. Nevertheless, if you look at history in 500 year segments, something is overwhelmingly clear. The world is becoming Christianized. There is no end to his government and peace and it is not just expanding in a heavenly sense. It is not just expanding in some mysterious sense. It is having an interest and increase in the world today. Unlike the sons of David, this true son is greater than David himself. Christ will not lose ground due to some weakness in him. The history of Israel is advance, retreat, advance, lose land due to compromise. Yet Christ is steadily taking ground marching through the world. Indeed, Christ will extend his kingdom forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Also necessarily implies that his glory will continue to ripple throughout all eternity. That the glory and majesty of Christ will be multiplied forever. It is not just something that ends when the world is fully Christianized. It is transforming the universe. Christ's reign over the throne of God will never end even when he hands it to the Father. Some Christians think that 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that Christ will, after the second coming, when the kingdom is fully prepared, not arrives, when it's fully prepared, uh, it will then be handed over to the Father. And then it says Christ will be subjected to to God, that God may be all in all, describing the the end or the goal of Christianity and and God's redemptive act in the world. But Christ is clearly said in multiple places, including Luke 1 and this passage, that he will reign eternally. And in fact, he even promises in the book of Revelation to the first century church, he tells them to stay faithful because you will be granted to sit down on my throne even as I sat down on the throne of my father. Therefore the reign of Christ, the authority of the father are not opposed. It's not a rival risk kingdom. The father loves his son and so he is rightly given to the son the authority and position to reign on his throne together. Christ's kingdom is not mystic- mystical, that is it's not spiritual, but it is manifestly concrete in time and place. This kingdom is from this time and forevermore and makes real progress throughout history. So do you despair at the future? This is a, is a appeal I've made many times over and over again that we would finally fully war against fear of the future. As I said earlier, those things which you will fear will become your gods. And so if you are afraid of the American government for persecuting Christians, if you are afraid of, quote, the liberal agenda Of which I would say there are many liberal agendas. If you are afraid of the increase the increase uh, of the Muslim religion if you are afraid of apostasy in the church those things will transform your heart. They will capture you. I have met people who the very most important thing that they wanted to share with me upon meeting me was do I know the great darkness that is coming upon the entire world. And I just I you know, like when I meet somebody like that, I don't try to change them right away. It's it's impossible to bring someone out of that instantaneously. It takes the unveiling of the the faith of the fathers of the of the church to show through the scriptures by the Holy Spirit that Christ is transforming the world. There will be no end to the increase. So, know for certain that his people at times vary in their obedience to Christ and are temporarily judged, not eternally, but temporarily through circumstances are judged for their disobedience. That is what defines our country now. His kingdom progresses forever. Finally, the prophet tells us for the reason for all of this. One of the things that is so important, you you heard a little bit of this during the Sunday school hour if you were here, is to understand the glory of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah ends his passage saying that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, notice clearly that everything in this passage is in the past tense. Uh, The people have seen, they who dwelt, past tense, in a land on them light has shone, past tense. Why is that? And then at the end of the passage, at the end of our reading, at the capstone of verse seven, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Why is it important for you to understand how to read the Bible? Because so much is wrapped up in paying deep attention to the word of God through the words of God. That is to say, the Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. I often waste my breath. Most of you most of you have heard me waste my breath from time to time. Everything spoken in this passage is past tense. Therefore, we have to understand something about the nature of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God shows Isaiah these things not as a possible future of God's redemption, but rather as a sure and concrete manifestation of God's heart and intentions through his redemptive plan. That is to say that God, who knows the end from the beginning by the Spirit of God, declares to Isaiah an oracle, a vision, which Isaiah has, and he sees the end from the beginning like God sees. He sees it as if the future, as in the future, and looking back to something that has already accomplished. I want you to think of this clearly. Maybe it helps for a timeline. No one on the CD or message podcast can know what I'm doing, but that's okay. Here's Isaiah. Isaiah lives at this point in time, and the future is over to your right, okay? The work of Christ is here, and yet all of these language, all of these verbs, all of the tenses in the passage are considered past tense. And so Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, is taken into the future to obtain the heavenly perspective and has shown these things already come to pass the light has shown the people who dwelt in a land of darkness have seen etc etc such that when looking back he is able to perceive them as done in times past yet to him they are times future indeed to us they are times past and so the holy spirit is right to explain the oracle To Isaiah and says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Spirit tells Isaiah how this will be accomplished, that he himself, being the fire and zeal of God, will perform them. The Holy Spirit thoroughly loves Christ and is very zealous to establish the kingdom of Christ and to make it manifest on the earth. The Spirit of God, therefore, is not idly waiting for the right conditions to appear on the earth, but he is actively forming a bride through whom he is converting the nations. You see, we often long for revival, but brothers and sisters, there is nothing other than a obedience at a personal level, corresponding with union, that is church membership with a group of people who are set in the same direction. That is how long-lasting revival takes place. And that is not opposed to what I just said. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Everything that you would muster in order to maintain faithfulness is a byproduct. It is a very fruit of the Spirit of God working in you. And so it is to God's glory alone. It is not to glorify you. Although you are only a mere cooperator with it, it is the very work of the Spirit of God. So my question to you is, are you apathetic towards the advancement of Christ's kingdom? Are you merely content to live your life in such a way as you would show up for work, go home, eat dinner, have a family, maybe have some friends, go to a good church, and do nothing else? are you apathetic towards the kingdom of christ now brothers and sisters godly faithfulness to the station which he has called you to is no it's it's no thing to snub or to malign but god has given us a great holy spirit and that great holy spirit is very active and can cause your heart to be full of flame with the zeal of god for the kingdom of christ such that you will be transformed so that you will be delivered from selfishness. You will be delivered from this ungodly generation which calls you to consume and spend on yourself and transform your life. Have your best, best life now. You are called to lay down your life. The emulation of Jesus Christ is the only road to spiritual maturity. And that spiritual maturity is nothing other than the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you are apathetic, and you may indeed identify the condition of your life as apathetic towards the kingdom of Christ and its advancement. If you identify that in yourself, do not despair, but look to Christ. One of the things that is, amazes me is that Christians who by the, by the scriptures and by the spirit of God within them ought to know better routinely are comfortable with a compromise of heart such that they never ask for wisdom from God. They never ask for zeal from God. They aren't even desiring God to give them more. And yet God says to him who has more will be given. Do you believe that's true? Are you asking for that to be true? Do you approve of the kingdom of God advancing and yet not work for it? Does this sound really great? This is, again, I've said this before, this is the danger of understanding the post-millennial hope that God will transform the world is there can be this subtle complacency that begins to reside in your heart such that you're comfortable with not working in the kingdom, not going into the vineyard, not harvesting the grain. Pray that you would be filled with a holy zeal and compassion for the lost. Pray like this in private until God blesses you. Many things that the patriarchs did are not to be commended, but the one thing that Jacob did at Bethel in which he wrestled with God until God blessed him is to be commended most definitely. Pray until God blesses you. Seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit to be clothed with power, to be a witness for Christ. Jesus gives this pattern if you- If you consider yourself to be a Christian and yet you do not have any desire or compassion for the lost, I would say that you ought to seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is something that our church is well acquainted with, and yet these baptisms are not a one-time activity but ought to be pursued more and more. The reason that you might be apathetic towards compassion for the lost is that Christ says that the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples in the baptism of the Spirit, and then they will be his witnesses. So much of our apathy towards witness, towards compassion for the lost, is due to a neglect of the Holy Spirit and his application in our lives. Finally, The call is to rest in the knowledge of God's sure zeal. Even though you know and are well acquainted with weakness in you, it is not alone up to you. Isn't that wonderful? You are not transforming the world. You can't transform the world. Indeed, you you are one person. And although you are one person and can make great advances in personal holiness and being an encouragement to your brothers and sisters and witnessing the zeal of the Lord of hosts is not you. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actively, powerfully working in transforming the kingdom and making it to expand. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would deliver us from everything that entangles us, that you would give to us a zeal, that the Holy Spirit would become for us a burning fire in our heart. That like Christ as he was crucified on the cross and like Gideon in times of old as they shattered the pots, that you would come by your spirit and shatter us. We pray, Lord, that you would break us, that you might be able to mold us into something useful for your kingdom. We pray that you would give us a holy zeal, this very zeal for the Lord of hosts, that you would transform our lives and that you would teach us to walk according to the grace which is given to us, that we would walk in step with the Spirit and not oppose to you, that we would listen to you and obey you and not spurn you and quench you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, that you would transform our lives. We confess, Lord, that nothing that we could do could perform this sort of work in our hearts, but you alone, and you are graciously predisposed to do this for your children, that you would transform us and bring us into the image of your son. Amen.
2: Let's pray together. O Holy One of Israel, in your zeal for righteousness, you have purified your people and made them anew. Remember now your ancient promise. Make straight the paths that lead to you and smooth the rough ways in us that in our day we might shine ever brighter as a light unto the world. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord."